Well, today we begin this adventure into the book of 1 John. And Lord willing, we're going to be examining one chapter a week. And with some stuff in between, this should take us almost up to Christmas. Yay! Yay! Maybe some snow this week. Yay! Okay, okay. (laughs) So, uh, this book only has five chapters. I encourage you to read ahead. Uh, maybe spend some time in First John, kind of looking at what this book is really all about. In all the epistles and letters of the New Testament, only two do not identify its author either by name or title. This is one of them. Who knows what the other New Testament book is that does not have a name or title for the author? It's a good guess, not Revelation. Acts? Mm. Uh, Acts. Who wrote Acts? Luke, right. Uh, Luke and Acts in the early church were uh, distributed or acknowledged as one book. Read them together. Luke and Acts are part one and part two. Good. Hebrews. How many of you think Hebrews is the right answer? It is all four of you. Thank you. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, it's Hebrews. Good job. Good job. Uh, this untitled letter was uh, written toward the end of the first century to no particular person, no particular church by someone we don't really know who it is. So here we are in First John. Uh, however, after carefully examining the evidence for a long, long time, I personally am convinced that the author is John. John the Apostle, who was not bashful when he said this, the one whom Jesus loved. That's how he described himself in John chapter 20, verse 2. Yeah, that's me, the one who Jesus likes best. Nah, 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 nah. Uh, Yeah, okay, John. Uh, What other books did John write? So we got 1 John. We acknowledge that John is the author. What other books did he write? Revelation, singular, Revelation, okay, good, and Gospel of John, second and third John, very good, how many is that total? Five, yeah, five books there in the New Testament. Well, as we get to this point in John's life, it had been more than 50 years since he had watched Jesus perform miracles, since he had seen Jesus go to the cross since he had seen Jesus arise from the dead and ascend into heaven. John had been a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee with his brother James before he met Jesus. He had become a faithful follower and, uh, as we have seen, a very close friend of Jesus. So as Jesus hung on the cross, he looked at John and what did he ask him? Take care of my mom. Take care of my mom. And from the lips of a dying man, Take care of my mom. That's a huge statement. It's a powerful statement. And John did it. And so this is John. In his latter years, he was pastoring a church in Ephesus. He was probably at this point the only surviving apostle. And so this is the end of an era. 
So false teaching was floating around, didn't take long for that to happen, as was declining commitment within the ranks of the Christians. And John wanted to set the record straight, so he wrote the book of First John. Now, uh, when you're in Bible college or seminary, this is one of the first books you translate when you are learning Greek. Why? Because the language is incredibly simple. It's written on, what do you think, Jeff, maybe a third grade level? Yeah, most of the words are one syllable. Very, very easy to understand. Very limited vocabulary. Yet it's packed with some real life-changing, profound truth if we can dig into the book. John makes statements about light and darkness. And what do those mean? Truth and error. Christ and the Antichrist. Loving the Father, loving the world, life and death, love and hate. He's constantly pairing these things together as we unpackage this over the next couple of months. Now, two of the key purposes in writing this letter, I think, are easily discovered. So if I'm looking at a book in the Bible, uh, what I generally do is look at how key words are used over and over again. Because that is the author's intent under the direction of the Holy Spirit as to why they're writing the book. So there's two words that immediately jump out when we look at the five chapters of 1 John. Uh, John desperately wants the reader to know Jesus. So he would say this, and I use this verse regularly when I'm talking to people. 1 John 5, 13. I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. The key is the word know. John uses the word know 37 times in this short letter. That's a lot. 37 times, you're following along in the sermon notes, 37 times. This knowledge of Jesus is in fact revolutionary. It is life-changing. So I have to ask you, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus, this giver of eternal life, this one who forgives sin, this one who provides us hope? Do you know this Jesus, And that's an important, important question, so stay tuned. In chapter 3, as I'm preparing these messages in advance, we're going to look at how you can know you have eternal life. What's the proof that you really are a Jesus follower? John gives us very two clear indications in John chapter 3 that this proves that you know Jesus. And I'd like us to stack our lives against these two truths to make sure that we all know that we have this gift of eternal life. The second is the theme of love. Our God is love. John uses this word 46 times, 46 times in this short little book, this word love. He says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So we know then that love is far beyond an emotion, isn't it? Love has got to be demonstrated by what we do and what we say. Then he goes on to say, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is is love and of course we love because he first loved us and i'm not capable of loving you until i know the love of the father now there will be aspects of love that i can show towards you but i can't love you the way that jesus loves unless i first know this god of love okay make sense to you so some very basic truth as we get rolling in the book 
of 1 John. You ready to dig in in chapter 1? Let's see what John's got for us, all right? So John experienced Jesus up close and personal. We look at the first two verses of 1 John chapter 1. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes, this is important, and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. We have seen him. Very important. Up close and personal encounter. Now, uh, I enjoy talking to people face to face, right? And so in all of technology, if you want the bottom feeders text or below that tweet, but then, then you got email, uh, then maybe a phone call, but whenever I can, even in, in work situations, I like to FaceTime. I like to see a person's face when I'm talking to them. So Jesus... Some people's faces, Al. Yours included. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so John is letting us know, hey, I've been right there, I've touched him. I've seen him. I've heard him with my own ears. He's the real deal, this Jesus. (laughs) So a key to the first chapter is found in verse 3. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard. I was there. I saw it. mm, So that you may have fellowship with us. There's the word. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. The word fellowship. Two other times in this chapter... Just 10 verses, John uses the word fellowship. So this is kind of the key of 1 John chapter 1. We are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. This is what false teachers were saying. I can do whatever I want because this mortal body has nothing to do with my spiritual body. Therefore, I can do whatever I want in this body as long as my soul is pure. And John's attacking the false teaching right here. Ah, you're lying if you say that you can have fellowship with God and live your life any way you want to. Hmm. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, next verse, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, we, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. So four times in ten verses, John uses this word fellowship. The word is koinonia. Koinonia. Can you say that with me? Koinonia. koinonia. That's the Greek word for fellowship. That's translated fellowship in this context. Now, in various places in the Bible, this same word koinonia is also translated in our English Bibles as share, participation, contribution, partnership, fellowship. It comes across in a whole bunch of English words, but it is the one word koinonia in Greek. So what is fellowship anyway? Now, many churches today have the word fellowship in their name. I love my Baptist brothers because there's a lot of fellowship churches there, right? Uh, churches add fellowship halls to their facility. What is a fellowship hall? Okay. And of course, fellowship must involve food, right? right. If you're going to have fellowship. Because a fellowship hall always has a kitchen, and a kitchen gives us potlucks. And potluck is fellowship. You see how this logic works? Now, we can enjoy some fellowship over some fried chicken or stir-fried preacher, depending on your diet, 
right? And you may often find food, fellowship, and fun for a church activity. Food, fellowship, and fun. Come, uh, come join in, right? A lot of good times going on. But what is fellowship anyway? Fellowship is far more than enjoying a meal together, though that can be an important part of it, or chatting with another Southsider about how this past week went. Understand, fellowship is a relationship, not an activity. Fellowship is a relationship, John is telling us, first of all with God, through his son Jesus, then with one another, right? It's a relationship, not an activity. Let's have some fellowship. What does that mean? It's not quite accurate when we look into the the meaning of the word. And here at Southside, we talk about having a common language, so we're all reading off the same script, right? So what does the word fellowship literally mean? Not how we've contextualized it in this particular culture. Let's look at this then. Fellowship is a relationship, not an activity. It means, quite literally, sharing. Sharing in. Sharing in. Here's 1 John 1, 3 again in the NAB. What we have seen and heard we declare to you so that you and we may together share in a common life. Here's this sharing aspect. That's a good translation. That we may share together in a common life, that life which we share with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we know from the book of Acts that the early church shared life together. They did life together. There was this sharing in life together. They understood their common faith in Jesus, joined them together in relationship in a community, not an organization. You didn't join the church. The church is a living organism. And therefore, it's based on relationships. So fellowship, then, was a part of that relationship, first of all, with God through His Son, Jesus. Now, it was a privilege to be a part of the body of Christ. It also had its responsibilities. And they, have a le- they had a level of intimacy that I hunger for. I don't know about you. They have a level of intimacy that I hunger for. And I know many of you as well. And that's one of the reasons... Uh, for me, when I left Bangkok, not to go into a larger church, and there were many opportunities to do that, but I have come to a point in my understanding of Scripture that church has got to be a family. There's nothing wrong with large churches. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying is this. It's, there's got to be an intimacy in the body of Christ if we're going to do this thing the way that I see the New Testament rolls it out. We've got to love one another as we're loving God together. So Acts 2, they committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together and the common meal. And all the believers lived in wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed daily discipline of worship in the temple. (laughs) Here's their daily schedule, folks. Daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home, every meal a celebration. Love that thought. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praise God. People in general like what they saw. Every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. What a demonstration of doing life together. Sharing in life together. This common life in Jesus. And others were watching and they said, we want a part of that action. My, look at the way they loved one another. And every day they worshipped together and then they had meals And the meals were joyful. They were exuberant. Uh, Praise to God. 
Why? Contrast that with the way that we live our lives in such a hectic way today. Food. Boom. On to the next thing. Wham, wham, wham. Wow. Wow. And so I come back to this and I said, wow, how do we do fellowship today? And too often we discuss everything except God. You notice that? Sometimes I scratch my head. We talk about jobs, school, sports, weather, current events, politics, family, Facebook, whatever, whatever. Almost everything and everything except what God is doing in our lives. And that's the basis of true fellowship. What is God doing in your life? What's going on there? Secondly, fellowship has to do with sharing with. One of the most common usages of the word koinonia in the New Testament is a sharing of material possessions. We'll talk more in depth about that later in the book. But an openness to sharing with those in need is, is absolutely essential if we're going to experience what fellowship is all about. We've got to share with others. Now, it goes way beyond dollars and cents. Now, TV telethons or GoFundMe accounts raise millions of dollars for great causes, right? Michael Jordan recently gave $2 million for hurricane relief in the Carolinas. Uh, Bill Gates, it's been well documented, has given $35 billion, $35 billion to charity. Uh, however, the family of God looks at this a little bit differently. There's a spiritual connection that has to go beyond our own personal boundaries and interests to look at the needs of others in our same spiritual family. Hmm. 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 Apart from having an all-in relationship with God that we talked about over the last few months, most of us will hoard and not help. We'll give a little bit extra that we might have, but our tendency is, is to hoard and, and not to help. Uh, we stockpile and not share sacrificially. But let's not forget that as God's stewards, we're simply managing all of his stuff and everything's his for his glory and the good of others. So there's this idea of sharing with. The early believers dug deep to meet the needs of others. And this kind of fellowship or life sharing can only happen when we understand what Jesus has done for us. It always comes back to the cross, doesn't it? When we understand the forgiveness that we've been given by God through Jesus, and then we walk in that, then things begin to change. Because you see, the number one fellowship killer is sin. That's what John's going to tell us in just a moment. Sin stymies forgiveness, which in turn will kill fellowship and leave us disconnected and isolated sin separates sin separates us from god sin separates us from each other and we're all siloed because of sin sin isolates sin shames sin destroys sin steals sin kills sin does all of these things and guess what we all sin so what do we do with this what do we do with this Unless we deal with our sin, fellowship with God or anyone else is impossible. How can we have fellowship with God if we're hanging on to ourselves and our sin nature? Hmm. False teachers were saying that we can have fellowship with God and still walk on the dark side of the force. No way. It's a lie, John says. It's a lie. So here's what happens as we unroll this thing. We've all fallen for a lie. Would you agree with that? We've all fallen for a lie. Where did it begin? Way back in the book of Genesis. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of these trees in the garden? What's the rest of that story? Did they eat? And what happened? 
Not so good stuff, right? They broke fellowship with God. They were separated from God, banned from the garden. Go. Go, right? Sin separates and breaks fellowship. Now, that sin nature impacted you, the person next to you, the person in front of you, the person behind you, because all have and fall short of the glory of God. That's right. We all get that. So what happens then is we deceive ourselves and we start believing a lie because Jeremiah would say, this heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who could know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. and My heart is deceitful and desperately sick. So we deceive ourselves and we believe the lie. John would put it this way in verse 8. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. We say, well, of course I sin. But you know what? Let's just temper this a little bit. My sin's not as bad as yours. And my sin's really not affecting anybody else. So it's really not that bad. Hmm. So if we claim this, then we start not only believing a lie, but living the lie, which says, John, we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. Can't happen. Now, how do we... Work this out. We all sin, and yet, what is John saying here? We're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're going to roll this out over the next few weeks. It's a good truth. Now, ultimately, then, here's the problem. If we say, my sin's not as bad as the next person's, and I I can go ahead and do this, it's not really all that bad. We're breaking fellowship with God, but we're also declaring a very, rather bold statement. God is a liar. Here's what John says. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar. Now, I don't know about you, but with all the trash talking and sarcasm that floats around in our culture today, we say a lot of mean-spirited things. But I would say calling God a liar, whoo, whoo, whoo. Careful, careful, careful. We make God a liar if we claim we've not sinned. God, you're a liar. (laughs) Careful, careful, careful. So what lies are we believing about God or ourselves or the person next to us right now? Because chances are we're believing a lie. Somewhere in the depths of our soul, we're believing a lie about God or about ourselves. And not seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. What lie are we believing? Hmm. Hmm. So John offers us a marvelous solution to this dilemma. He says, uh, it's not that hard. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. It, here's what he says in verse 7. For living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We've got to live in the light. Step out in the light so I can see your face. I can't see it in the shadows. And I get really confused in Sheboygan why people walk their black lab at night dressed all in black. It's like, huh? I don't get this. Light is a symbol of what is pure and good and holy. In other words, it's a symbol of God. Light, light. Darkness symbolizes sin and evil. Like truth, light always exposes everything. Step into the light. Step into the light. And once we're in the light, everything begins to change at that point. 
Because now it's all on the table. Jesus, of course, is the light. I'm the light of the world, he said. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Step into the light. Jesus is the light. Paul would say this way, what fellowship can light have with darkness? That's a rhetorical question. doesn't need an answer because they don't have anything in common. And yet so many of us tend to stride right up to the edge of the darkness, see how close we can get to it, rather than rushing to the light. And there's areas in my heart and yours in which we do this. John says, step in the light. Step fully into the light. And find the freedom that comes when we step in the light. Wow. And then he says, keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. He says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. So, God doesn't simply cancel the debt of our sin. You're here in an evangelical church because you believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the grave, and that your sins are forgiven. Do you believe that? But understand, when Jesus died on that cross for you and for me, he also removes the shame and the stain of sin And I know in this room right now, there are a number of people who are still laboring under the shame and the guilt of sin from a long time ago. Fully grasping in our head that my sin is forgiven, but continuing to labor and struggle with the shame, with the guilt, with the bondage that comes not understanding that God wipes the slate clean. It's gone. It's removed. Is that good news? I know because I'm one of those people. And I have to come back to the truth, to walk in the light, to keep the counts short, that not only has God forgiven me for that action, that thought, that word, he's also forgiving me from the guilt of what happened there. I'm the one that chooses guilt. God's not putting that on me. He wants freedom. He operates in the light. And he welcomes all of us and beckons all of us. I'll take care of the stain and the shame and the disgrace and all the guilt you're feeling from that. Let it go. Let it go. It's a simple process. It's a continual process. It starts with confession. Confession simply means to agree. God, I agree that this is wrong, that I did it, I thought it, I said it, whatever. And then the second part of that is repentance in which I say, oh God, give me the strength now by the power of your spirit to change the direction of my life so I'm not caught in that again and again and again. And even if we are caught in it again and again and again, his grace is sufficient. As long as we're making that journey towards wholeness, Will we stumble? Will we fall? Will we fail? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we say we have no sin, we're calling God a liar. So take off your evangelical mask in the facade and step into the light, which is transparent and open and honest, and we're free to share with one another. This is where I am. Pray with me. Help me. Wow. 
Fellowship is restored with God through forgiveness. Sin severs relationships with God, with one another. God reconciles relationships. That's why he sent his son. And that slate is clean. It's available for us now. We can start fresh again and find the fellowship that we so hunger for to connect with others, to connect with God in powerful ways. I have a dream for this church that it might be a place where meaningful relationships are developed and true fellowship becomes the norm. But we can't do business as usual if that's going to happen. We've got to push beyond, hey, how are you? How are you? I'm fine, I'm fine. Into questions of compassion like, what's God been up to this week in your life? Wayne, did you hear that question this morning? Yeah. And out comes an honest answer. Sandoval, did I ask you that question this morning? Where are you? Yeah. Did I ask you that question this morning? Okay, I'll close with this. Uh oh. The sand of all that you asked. Oh, yeah. No, no. I think it was you. Why don't you stay up here? <laughs> These two men were sitting at the table, and I said, what has God been up to in your life this week? Sandoval started with a real kind of surfacey answer, but then he went deeper. Share with them what you share with me. Are you comfortable doing this? Sure. Good, because I don't really care. (laughs) Because this is important. This is the way we should talk with one another, I believe, in the body of Christ. What did you say to me? Um, I gave an example from work where I was called out on something that I did. And uh, one of my uh, reactions I had with a co-worker that did not um, help with us building a team environment because I simply act, acted on an impulse to and a, a desire to be right and to expose my opinion and, and to say this is what we need to do and type of thing. And, um, and it really brought to me the, 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 the fact that I need to think about others around me and, and conscient, be conscientious of, of, of the fellowship that you're talking about. At work, at church, at home, uh, everywhere. Good, good. And I appreciate your honest answer because I don't like surface answers. Like, I had a tough week at work. I had a situation. No, give me the details. Because once we understand that, then that knits our hearts together, you see. And you said you were glad your boss called you out for that. Yeah. Because you grew from it. Yeah, he taught me something different or brought something to the surface that I know I need to be conscientious of. Thank you for your courage in sharing that this morning. Thank you, man. This is what I dream of. That when we come to church, it's not simply to come to church. It's to experience the fellowship that God wants us to have through Jesus with one another. Can you think about doing that going forward? When you're talking with somebody else? Mark, You can give me all kinds of Packer info, right? Yeah. But this guy's got a heart that loves God. 
And we've got to tap into those things, folks. Learning to love one another in deeper and deeper ways. So let's move forward. Let's share in the wonderful forgiveness and the fellowship that Jesus is saying is yours. First John, get ready. We're going to have some wonderful truth here. And I trust that our fellowship will be pure and sweet with the Father through His Son, Jesus, and with one another. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. It's liberating. And I'm asking, Lord Jesus, that you would walk among us, extending your hand of freedom from the shame and the stain that we carried in here from things from the past. Yes, they're there. Yes, they have shaped our lives. I understand that. We all have it. And yet you desire that we walk in the light, in the freedom, in the joy that only you can give us. So, Father, we have encountered the truth and you said the truth would set us free. So in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would bring freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit. Come upon us and let us know this intimate fellowship, sharing life, doing life together with you and with one another. I'm so very grateful, so very grateful, Father, for the love that you continually show us. We love you. And thank you together in Jesus' name, and together all God's people said, Amen. Amen.